Hi, and welcome to Top in Tech, a Global Council podcast. My name is Colin Darcy, and I'm a Senior Practice Director at Global Council. Happy New Year to all Top in Tech listeners. Today, we're going to cover two issues that have been making the news at the start of this year. The first is the traditional start to the tech calendar, the CES conference in Las Vegas. Michelle Ryang, a senior associate in our US tech team, was there, and she's going to tell us not just what she saw, the new tech and all the latest whiz-bang widgets and gadgets and so on and so forth, but the extent to which policy questions are impacting on CES and the extent to which they were talked about at that conference. Welcome, Michelle. In the second half of the podcast, we're going to move on to the UK policy agenda. There was a major announcement last week on the Media Bill, which is set to regulate video streaming services in the UK. Bart Miners, an associate in our London tech policy team, is here to help us talk us through it. So let's get started, Michelle, if we can, on the CES conference. And before we jump into some of, you know, we are a policy podcast, but before we jump into those policy questions, could you just give listeners who weren't lucky enough to be at the CES conference a sense of what were the new trends in tech that some of those aspiring companies are looking to push onto and sell to consumers over the course of the next few years? Yeah, so definitely a couple of overarching themes that we saw that were very strong that industry was trying to push throughout the show. The first theme I would say was future mobility and maybe not in the way that the average consumer or you or I would think about it, which is you know putting more AVs on the road, EV ports on highways or e-scooters on sidewalks, but industry really pushing this concept that we should reimagine what the vehicle or the car can do for us that it should provide us with more tailored, more personalized services. It should give us our time back to work or be entertained while we're being transported. And to make all of this happen, we really need A, more AI integration, and B, that car companies will eventually have to become digital services providers. They're no longer just selling you the car, but really a suite of services uh, that, that come along with it. So I think that latter point was really interesting. It felt to us like in conversations with industry leaders that we had across the mobility ecosystem, ecosystem. They're really shying away from wanting to be seen as just OEMs or just manufacturers. They really want to rebrand as digital companies because they believe the future of mobility is digital. So one example I have is this keynote address that we attended with the CEO of BMW, who mentioned that his ultimate vision for their vehicles is to have uh, is for the cars to have a digital soul and be able to read driver emotions and become a true companion. So whether or not that becomes a reality, I think this concept was still really interesting and something that we saw undergirding a lot of the mobility presentations throughout the show. The second theme I'd say was AI and AI being integrated into more and more consumer products and services. We saw a vast array of devices where the AI was a very strong selling point into things that you wouldn't normally think about as needing AI, something like an AI-driven refrigerator that displays a, you know, on the screen a photo of what's inside of your fridge and will reorder groceries when you get low, AI scales in your laundry room that measure uh, the weight of your detergent bottle and will reorder that when it, when it runs gets a little too light. And then things that could be uh, potentially construed by regulators as being more invasive, like a robot that tells your children a bedtime story, an AI integrated toilet that detects your hydration levels. Um, And then zooming out and thinking about B2C services, AI being integrated into things like attention tracking for ads. So eye movement tracking, time spent looking at the TV or the screen. Um, And so overall, it seems like the front line of where 
artificial intelligence is interacting with consumers' lives today was really being pushed further and further. And we're seeing this IoT ecosystem just really massively expanding as a result of that. We'll jump onto the point you made about AI a little bit later, because there is something counterintuitive about a conference that is known for hardware, where software um, and AI is is so prominent and the talked about thing. On that first point, it's just quite interesting, isn't it? If we think for a moment about the future of mobility and the future of car companies, if genuinely that is where things are going, you do wonder what the implications are for the workforces of those companies when cars break down, when cars need repairs. It sounds like that's going to be increasingly become a digital engineering problem as much as a manufacturing and car maintenance issue. Um, and that's something you would imagine is going to have to see shifts in order to keep those cars uh, running and serviced in a way uh, that respects and responds to uh, consumer needs. As you sort of talked about there, Michelle, it, it sounds to me like those there's lots of interesting stuff bubbling away there, lots of sense of innovation and the future. So CS, perhaps not in as pessimistic a mood as maybe I would have thought. I mean, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this because we've seen the crypto crash. We saw FTX. We've seen the market turmoil. We've seen the chaos in ad tech and the tens of thousands that are getting laid off seemingly in large tech companies every week. I think it was Salesforce uh, just the other day. So we've got a succession of industry bad news stories. So was it a more positive uh, upbeat still theme at CES, or could you detect a little bit of a sense of uh, doom and pessimism? Yeah, I think maybe by attending the largest tech conference in the world, you are self-selecting into a group of industry optimists. But based on what we heard in panels, our conversations with industry, and what was very visible in terms of who uh, was represented on the conference floor, felt like industry was not ignoring market events. Um, so a Yes, it wasn't as well attended as events prior to COVID, but um, according to the industry veterans we talked to who have been going, you know, this is their 22nd or 23rd show, they they said it really felt like it was back. Uh, the the energy's back, the momentum is back. I think in 2022, we saw 30,000 attendees and this year's brought in over 100,000. Yes, there's definitely a shortfall between that and uh, the average, I think, number was 100. 150 or 160,000 attendees in prior years before the pandemic. But going by U.S. census standards, that's still a good American mid-sized city descending upon Las Vegas for a weekend. So it did feel to us like momentum is building. Um, second, in panels, you could see that industry was acknowledging what's happening externally. So they definitely addressed some of the you know market forces at work. It's been a tough year, but based on comments that we heard from CEOs and other C-suite individuals, they are viewing they're viewing the current slump as really presenting an opportunity for innovation. So we heard from the CEO of a global ad tech company that when things when things are in a slump, it's actually a much better time to test new methods and to innovate because when things are going well and you're a publicly traded company, it's tough to make the case to your shareholders uh, and to um, and to to your team members that there is a real incentive in changing things and in, and in trying something new. Separately, we also heard from Senator Mark Warner, senior Democratic senator from Virginia, who, as you know, is a former tech executive, longtime investor. He was an early investor in the cell phone, uh, to to his credit, um, and he referred to the current slump as just part of the normal cycle. And so. 
we did feel like there was definitely acknowledgement that that things are not, um, you know, sort of at their peak or, you know, I, I know that tech equities were kind of at an all time high during the pandemic, but um, it felt like they're they're well aware. They understand that there are, you know, even when discussing their ultimate vision for where they would like AI or some of their products and services to go, that there are limits to where technology currently sits um, and that there is potential for things to go wrong as well. And then finally, I'd say you could see what's happening at the macro level in terms of representation in the audience. So we saw very strong representation from South Korean and Taiwanese tech companies, but no Russian representation. And I think that's per CES policy due to the, the war in Ukraine. And then not very many Chinese companies, which was surprising to us. I think in prior years, we'd read that Chinese representation was much stronger. Um, and so maybe that's due to COVID travel restrictions, but we didn't really see a very strong Chinese presence. So between that, the makeup of the of the audience and a definite focus on things like competition, national security, and just current market dynamics in the panel sessions, it felt to us like industry is definitely viewing these external events with, with eyes wide open and they're sort of choosing to remain optimistic about it and the opportunities it presents. I suppose I hadn't considered the, the COVID factor there that this is really the first time that CES has been able to take place since we've started to manage uh, the impacts of COVID through vaccinations and we aren't seeing lockdowns in quite the same way that we'd seen at this time last year. You remember, Michelle, we were in uh, San Francisco and Silicon Valley and, and I think it was the start of March last year and it was still pretty quiet. Lots of people uh, working from home in the center of places were not were not busy at all. So I suppose that would have affected conferences like CS, CS at the time. So let's move on to that question around policy. We spend all our time on these podcasts talking about the so-called tech lash, the regulation of the sector. Obviously, that's particularly prominent in Europe, but it's not just restricted to Europe, places like India, Brazil, um, other parts uh, of the world, but also the debate in the US, which is which is pretty pretty uh, vociferous, even if regulation hasn't necessarily followed. So, was there any sign of that being acknowledged at the conference? Did people talk or about policy issues, or did they reflect on policy issues in a in a thoughtful and considered way, or was it more? like you would expect where you have the conventional startup developer mindset, which is product first and government policy regulatory considerations are essentially just in the way. Yeah. So yes and no. I think they were aligned on a couple points and then deviated on, on others. So where they were aligned, industry and lawmakers, was on, on two things. One, that regulation needs to happen and it needs to happen quickly. And that two, politicking and politics is really getting in the way of efficient policymaking, which is a hurdle to growth for industry. And so both sides acknowledge that the lack of progress we've seen in developing clear timely frameworks, regulatory frameworks, is really a hurdle. We need to remove overhang and give industry runway to innovate with confidence. We specifically heard from Honda in, in one panel mentioning that 2023 needs to be the year AB legislation happens or else we will fall behind globally. There's a perception on both sides that politics has really gotten to a point where it's preventing 
preventing industry from being able to progress. And that was made very obvious, you know, no less evident by a panel featuring that was supposed to feature congressmen getting canceled because at the time they were stuck in one of, and at the time it was 11 cycles of voting uh, Kevin McCarthy into the Speaker of the House seat. And, and that number eventually went up to 15, but it was made very clear, I think, to to the audience. Um, and it was something that they aligned on. On the flip side, where they deviated is maybe in how industry represented themselves in the show. And you're, you're right in a world where the US, the UK, and the EU have all sort of widely publicized um, that, that there is going to be a very near-term focus on three things, on competition, on privacy, and safety. I don't, to us, to people who look at policy every day, it didn't feel like industry sufficiently acknowledged any of these topics. So at least in the U.S., privacy and safety are a bipartisan concern. It didn't feel like either were addressed on the floor or in the panels unless it was in the context of competition. So even with AVs, I'd say it was really only discussed in terms of physical safety. How do we improve driver safety and convenience to encourage greater adoption of our vehicles? It was not discussed in terms of how is all of this driver data that we're collecting, like geolocation data, emotion tracking eventually, how will it be used, how will it be managed, how will it be stored? So that was interesting. And then I'd say the biggest example of this to us was actually the, the Amazon display. And it was a very visually striking display, very fun to interact with. It was laid out like the interior of a household and each room had an array of IoT Amazon devices. But it felt to me, at least, that for a company that is currently in the crosshairs of multiple regulatory agencies in the U.S. currently undergoing a massive amount of scrutiny that they really wanted to prioritize. They made the kind of, you know, the, the conscious decision to flex their ingenuity over addressing some of the issues or incorporating a consideration of some of the issues that they're having currently regarding privacy and safety. In addition to that, they didn't really address their dominance of the market and what regulators may have seen as um, anti-competitive behavior. When you walk into the display, you see a you know a household full of Amazon IoT devices where conceivably a consumer could you know every single item you own is collecting data on you. And I think that is a regulator's nightmare, or um, maybe if you're leading a con, it's, it's your dream. But and then finally, I don't think data privacy was really addressed by uh, even some of the some of the software or uh, software companies like. Ad tech in particular, discussing how we can use attention as a metric um, other than, you know, clicks or page views, tracking things like eye movement or time spent looking at ads. There's really no discussion of how that data is going to be managed or treated when it is the single biggest focus for, for U.S. Congress, at least. Policy was sort of there and, and present, but not particularly prominent. Um, and if anything, it sounds like what you're describing there, Michelle, is that there was a bit of putting the boot in on politicians for not getting the job done on actually having Washington, D.C. and Congress functioning properly uh, rather than um, a more holistic discussion around some of the priorities that certain uh, lawmakers have in the U.S., but also uh, more globally, whether that's privacy or online safety or, or such like. Let's go back now very quickly to the question of AI, because obviously the the big buzz in tech at the moment is not about hardware, um, even if AI is clearly playing into transforming how some of that hardware might operate. It's also about a different segment of where AI innovation is taking place, particularly around generative AI and chat GPT, which I suspect you, 
Bart, other listeners on the line have all had a play around with, and it's it's it, you know it's pretty pretty incredible its ability to do uh, certain things. I mean, it's not perfect as we know in some of the answers that it's able to give, but it's pretty impressive, and it it points to a potential which is huge and and quite significant. So, can you just talk us through? Was there much chat? Uh, at CES about chat GPT and generative AMI broadly, and specifically any discussions around what it and generative AI more broadly might mean for policy and regulation? Definitely. So lots of buzz around generative AI. And if you are an elder millennial like me, uh, perhaps you remember the days of AI Smarter Child on AIM. Uh, but something like chat GPT, I think there was there was a lot of discussion and definitely some anxiety from industry about it going too far. Uh, this idea that in a world where a lot of these companies are focused on cybersecurity and um, ensuring that their you know IP remains secure, that ChatGPT actually equips actors with better tools. And that's a concern for both industry and lawmakers, that um, it gives them better, more effective tools to engage in cyber attacks or phishing scams. Um, Prior to something like generative AI, we, you know, you had to, as a bad actor, you probably had to choose between uh, one or two things. Um, The first being personalized, smaller scale attacks, uh, you know, those emails we've all gotten from our boss asking us to buy gift cards or more depersonalized mass scale attacks where, you know, thousands of people, thousands of devices are targeted. And with generative AI, a bad actor no longer has to make that decision. So there's definitely fear and anxiety around that um, and how to how to put guardrails around, around what it could be used for. Um, Second, I would say there was also a concern around uh, dis and misinformation. So this idea that generative AI makes it much easier to spread something like that. And when you're thinking about the dynamic, the current dynamic around Section 230 uh, and the treatment of dis and misinformation in the U.S., when both parties agree that it's a problem, but neither can really find a solution on uh, ensuring that it's not spread as effectively. I think generative AI can be seen as a as a tool that, that might fall into the wrong hands. But on the plus side, I think industry expressed optimism around how it can provide us with better search options, on, better online search options, and maybe break the uh, sort of monopoly that Google and other search, uh, search engine companies have on the market currently. I would say separately, there's... Um, there was a bit of focus on what this means for U.S. national security and competitive positioning. So how can we continue to innovate um, with better guardrails for consumers, ensuring that consumers are um, protected from cyber attacks, uh, and, and how can regulators sort of support that? It is interesting to reflect around the geopolitics of this as well. If, if we think that the concerns we are starting to see related to generative AI are both around how bad actors might use it, but also around mis- and disinformation. You can start to understand the concern in Washington, D.C., but also in Silicon Valley around the competition with countries like China around AI innovation. And I think OpenAI, which uh, Sam Altman, um, which developed ChatGPT, they're, they're very explicit about this one. The reasons why they have innovated in this space is because they want to ensure that the U.S. has technological leadership. 
The second point that occurred to me while you were talking, Michelle, is that final point about search, which is where there's some interesting knock-on here to antitrust and competition policy. The debate that we've had over the past decade has been increasing concern about monopolies and duopolies. So whether that's around the advertising market and the role that uh, Google, Alphabet, and Facebook slash Meta have had in dominating uh, much of that market. Likewise, we've had lots of concern about social media in particular and the role that Meta has, or also operating systems like Apple, um, iOS, and Android via Google. What's quite interesting is that we've seen a few changes more broadly here. So we've seen in the advertising market, for instance, we've seen Amazon build a big ad business. We've seen Apple starting to build a big ad business. We've seen the uh, the tracking changes that Apple has introduced and really changed the market. And of course, we're seeing TikTok grab, or at least attempt to grab quite a lot of market share. With generative AI and all this talk about how it may transform search, suddenly you start to see that competitive dynamic potentially change where we've expected and got used to Google effectively dominating uh, that function and that market. There is now scope for that to change. And it's an interesting question for antitrust regulators moving forward about the extent to which they still make the same calculations and assumptions about the dominance or the perceived dominance of some of these companies when we are seeing these changes in technology and competition that are shaping how the market plays out. So the final thing I just wanted to jump back onto is you mentioned earlier, Michelle, that there was a, there was you could see the representation. The national representation was different this time. Lots of companies from South Korea, but not really many from China. Can we just talk about the national security elements of this? We The big trend of last year, or indeed the last three or four years in global tech policy, has been the decoupling between the US and China in tech policy. Was that evident? Was there much talk about national security concerns and about Chinese tech and the competitive threat that that posed? Yeah. So I think we, between the representation that we saw in the audience and the makeup of the attendees, there was definitely a lot of focus on national security and competition as playing a role in ensuring that our national security is as strong as it can be uh, during the panels and in our conversations with industry executives. There was one panel in particular that was devoted to cybersecurity and focused on how industry can innovate to shore up the U.S. competitive position against adversarial nations, as well as how lawmakers and regulators, uh, what what they can do on their part to ensure that um, industry is well supported in that. Um, And it seems like in order to present the strongest sort of defense, the U.S. needs to remain a global leader in innovation. Um, And part of that means reducing dependence on foreign players, you know, ensuring we aren't behind in terms of development. Um, And also this, you know, in recent years, there's been a big push in the U.S. to reshore, onshore, uh, to have more independent supply chains. I think all of that was definitely discussed. And it seemed like both sides, both industry and lawmakers, were aligned in uh, in that regard. Great. Well, thanks very much for all those reflections, Michelle. That was a, a great sweep from the the industry to the to the policy to the to the politics of of CES. Um, we look forward to more analysis uh, along those lines uh, coming up on future episodes. 
Each January, Global Council hosts our flagship conference, The Politics Off. Each year tackles a major issue that we really believe will shape the year ahead. And this year, the focus is on food. Access to resources and food really chief among them has always been one of the most deeply political questions out there especially if you're looking at the impact of the invasion of Ukraine, which has really disrupted um, supplies from two of the world's largest grain exporters, and that has caused really serious ripple effects around the world. Our conference is going to look at different aspects of that. We're going to tackle technological, regulatory and geopolitical challenges that food systems are facing around the world in 2023. It's also exciting to say that this year is actually going to be our biggest and most international politics of conference yet. We're really going to take full advantage of our increasingly international scopes, and we're going to have in-person events in D.C., in London, Brussels and Doha and online events in Singapore. To find out more, please have a look at our website at www.events.global-council.com forward slash the politics of food. What I'd like to do now is shift from Las Vegas uh, back to London, Bart, and talk about the media bill which feels sort of significantly less exciting than you know the, the, the dynamics of the CES conference. So we've got to make sure that we, we try and liven up uh, this discussion and make sure that we engage uh, our listeners on all the crunchy politics that is involved behind the happenings that we've been seeing over the past couple of weeks. So we've talked about the media bill on previous episodes. Indeed, I think the last time you came onto the podcast, Bart, was to talk us through what was going on with the media bill at that point. So before we talk about the announcement last week, why it happened, what it means, and so on and so forth, can you just quickly remind both listeners, but also me, what was the original media bill all about? What was in it and what was it going to do? And then we could talk about why it's changed. Of course, uh, and great to be joining both of you. So this is not a new piece of legislation, as you say. The media bill was first trailed in the Queen's speech last May by the Johnson government. It included a raft of proposals, but key amongst those were uh, proposals to privatise Channel 4, the public service broadcaster, um, provisions designed to improve the content of other public service broadcasters like BBC uh, and ITV alongside Channel 4, designed to improve their uh, the prominence of their content on smart and connected devices. And finally, the granting of powers to Ofcom to allow it to draft and enforce a video and demand or VOD code, which would regulate the content produced by digital platforms like Netflix or Apple TV+. Uh, now, this is a tech podcast. So from a tech perspective, this last measure, these uh, VOD code proposals are probably the most notable. So the situation that stands with with that is that Ofcom uh, enforces its broadcasting code, which is a regulatory framework which applies to the content of all traditional linear broadcasters, those that you might see when flicking through channels on your non-smart TVs in, in days past. However, as it concerns online streaming platforms, BBC iPlayer is the only service which is currently required to adhere to the broadcasting code. Platforms like Netflix, Amazon Prime Video and Disney Plus at the moment only have to conform to the on-demand program services rules or the ODPS rules. These are slightly more lax than the broadcasting code's rules. They primarily impose restrictions on issues like content harmful to under-18s and content likely to incite hatred 
but as I say, are more relaxed on issues like misinformation, harm to adults, due impartiality and accuracy, and content of a religious and or political nature. When considering the media bill, the Johnson government's central contention was that this situation essentially put PSBs, public service broadcasters, and traditional linear broadcasters at an unfair disadvantage to their large international streaming competitors. Although specifics regarding what exactly a new VOD code might entail haven't been published, government consultation documents from April 2022 highlighted the government's intention to better align rules for traditional linear broadcasters and VOD services. It's that age-old question, isn't it, Bart, that we're seeing not just in broadcasting, but across many different sectors, which is, should new digital services or should existing services that are delivered through a different digital means be regulated in the same way as the incumbent traditional industry? Obviously, we see equivalents of this debate in financial services. We have the whole same rules, same risk, same risk, same rules that we see uh, a lot of banks pushing with regards to tech tech sector operating in financial services. We see it in places like telecoms, the list goes on and on. So essentially, we're seeing a leveling of the playing field through this bill. What changed last week? And is it relevant in any way to the streaming service debate that you've just talked us through? Yeah, so so not exactly as you as you mentioned uh, right at the start of this podcast, we did have this uh, announcement uh, this week that uh, the government would not be pursuing its proposals to uh, privatise Channel Four. These were uh, understandably the most controversial of the media bill's proposal. Uh, as a slight intro to potential uh, international listeners to Channel 4. Channel 4 is a public service broadcaster or a PSB uh, like the BBC and ITV alongside it, but it has a pretty unique operating model in that it has this public service remit, exists for the benefit of the public, but is entirely funded by its own advertising revenue, unlike the BBC. The Johnson government argued that Channel 4's survival essentially was contingent on its privatisation in order uh, to ensure that it was able to compete effectively against this mounting uh, international streaming platform opposition. What we had this week was new culture secretary or new compared to um, the culture secretary at the time these proposals were made, Michelle Donnellan, concluding that uh, the business case for privatising Channel 4 was insufficient. She particularly found that the independent TV and film production sector would be very negatively impacted by a sale. Channel 4 um, doesn't produce its own content. It commissions independent producers to to um to make it for it. Uh, instead, the government has proposed a series of reforms to consolidate Channel 4's contributions to skills investments, the independent production sector, and increasing its uh, employment footprint and presence outside of London. Thanks. So the whole Channel 4 debate is probably quite puzzling to anyone who's dialing in from outside of the UK. But it's quite a contested uh, debate in the British media where despite the fact that Channel 4 is funded by advertising and in, in that respect operates like a, uh, like a private company, 
there is this huge debate about its role and the extent to which it should remain owned by the public sector. And it has got particularly vociferous. As we know, the media in any market, but it's very true in the UK, the media like nothing better than writing about the media. So Channel 4, while not necessarily the debate has not necessarily been conscious, particularly in the public's mind, it's not a it's not something that's going to get people voting tomorrow for a particular party or another. It's certainly something that is really, really playing out with interest groups in the media um, over the past few months. So, but we've so we've we've got this right. So we've got the media bill had Channel Four issues around prominence of public service broadcasting and also around the video streaming services, which is the bit we're really really interested in. The Channel 4 stuff sounds like it's been modified. The privatization won't happen, but there will be bits in the bill around it. Does that mean that the other two bits, I mean, less less interest on the prominent side, but particularly on the video streaming side, is that still in there? And is that still going to go ahead? In words, yes. There's no indication or suggestion currently that the government intends to step back from those other provisions you mentioned. Uh, In fact, the government has pretty consistently and frequently in recent months committed to proceeding with the media bill. So while the logic underpinning the case for Channel 4 privatisation might stand on shakier ground, um, concerns around the need for a level playing field between PSB's traditional linear broadcasters and large international streaming services remain pretty valid. So the government is likely to continue to pursue these other reforms of the broadcasting and streaming ecosystems with the aim of better supporting uh, British incumbents, not only by proceeding with these VOD code proposals, which we discussed earlier, but also, as you mentioned, uh, improving the prominence of PSB content on smart and connected devices. Great. So if you are working for a company like Netflix, Apple TV, Paramount Plus, whichever one, the basic story that you're telling here, Bart, the basic message you're giving is that more regulation is coming and it's coming relatively soon, although we'll go on to timing, I think, at the end. Can we just pause quickly on the politics We've seen criticism of the government's announcement by Nadine Doris, who was the former Digital Culture Media and Sports Secretary in the UK. So she was the person who was previously responsible for the media bill. She was a big, close ally of the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. What are the politics at play here, this this infighting between different prominent conservative politicians? Yes, it's a, it's a very interesting dynamic, actually. Um, so the Johnson government, Boris Johnson himself and uh, Culture Secretary Nadine Dorries faced uh, a lot of criticism from opponents of Channel 4 privatisation for embarking allegedly on a sort of culture wars, political vendetta uh, against Channel 4. The, the backdrop to that is that Channel 4 is seen by many within the Conservative Party as more left-leaning than, than other PSBs and, and media groups, and uh, Channel 4 in particular was was consistently very critical of elements of the Johnson administration. Although that fundamental belief of Channel 4 
being more left-leaning is long-standing. Um, as some of our listeners, uh, as many of our listeners might uh, remember, a lot of this hostility actually harks back to uh, this interesting incident of uh, Channel 4's decision to replace Boris Johnson with a melting ice sculpture uh, after he refused to participate in a leaders' debate on climate change right before the December 2019 general election. These allegations of a political agenda uh, only mounted after the government announced that it would move forward with its privatisation agenda, uh, despite very strong opposition being expressed by voices from within the broadcasting, independent TV and film production and uh, news media sectors at consultation phase. Following Johnson, uh, Truss committed to continuing to review the business case for Channel 4 privatisation during her short-lived premiership. Um, Sunak and key members of his cabinet, however, have reportedly been a lot cooler on the proposal since they entered number 10. As highlighted by last week's announcement, the government would not be proceeding with privatisation. Many within the government, including Sunak himself, uh, reportedly unconvinced by the business merits of the move, particularly considering the not insignificant political capital that would presumably have to be spent in order to push privatisation through against pretty broad political and industrial opposition during a time in which the government sees competing priorities as far more pressing. So all in all, it's not entirely surprising that these proposals have now been formally scrapped. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me that many in and around Rishi Sunak would share similar views about Channel 4 as the team in and around Boris Johnson or Nadine Doris. I think it, there is a big issue here about government capacity. It would have been a big fight to push forward the Channel 4 privatisation. I mean, the government has the numbers to have done so. But it would have been a big fight and it would have caused a lot of a lot of controversy and would have used up a lot of energy within the government. And there's lots of other competing priorities there. We've seen only in the last uh, week or so the new proposals for anti-strike legislation in the UK, which the government's really keen to push. And you can see in that broader prioritization discussion within government why aspects of the media bill have fallen by the wayside. So I said before, the message, Bart, that you had is if you work in a video streaming service, that regulation is coming and it's coming relatively soon. So just to conclude here, can you give a few details that can define what I, we and you mean by soon? When is when is the bill coming? So uh, I hate to be a disappointment to listeners, but there is no current indicative firm time frame for when we uh, can expect the media bill to be presented for parliamentary scrutiny and that we don't have an exact date. We have an idea. Um, during a debate earlier this week on Channel 4, following the government's announcement that it wouldn't be proceeding with privatisation, Michelle Donnellan was asked by Labour MP Kevin Brennan for a more precise estimation of when the media bill could be expected. As herself and DCMS officials have done uh, in recent months, she didn't provide an exact time frame, but reiterated the government's commitment to bringing the bill forward shortly. Uh, so barring any further significant changes in policy, we can probably expect to see the bill come before the House before the end of Q1 
maybe Q2 at a stretch, but uh, but no exact details at this stage. Well, we'll keep uh, our ear to the ground and uh, we'll keep listeners updated throughout the course of this year with any further developments uh, on the media bill and the pending regulation or further regulation of video streaming services. So I'd just like to say thank you to, to Bart for uh, his interventions and analysis on the UK's media bill and to Michelle on the CES conference, the glamour of the CES conference compared to the the dark, murky politics of British broadcasting regulation that Bart's taken us through. So thank you both. And just to flag to anyone who happens to still be listening right to the end of the podcast, that if you, your business or your investment are exposed to any of the developments we've talked about today. So that would either be around broadcasting and video streaming regulation in the UK, but also in other markets. And some of the trends which Michelle picked out from CES, where that's around privacy, AI regulation, online safety, where the focus that Michelle talked us through was in the US, but clearly those sorts of debates are happening elsewhere. If you're interested in those areas, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find our contact details and the details of other sectoral teams within Global Council on our website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. So I'd just like to say thank you very much for joining us. Next time, we're going to be interviewing uh, Leo Ringer, who has uh, set up Form Ventures, a venture capital firm based in the UK. He's recently contributed to a landmark report on the state of the European tech scene, and he's going to share some of his insights and analysis, both on that report, but also on the experience of setting up a venture capital firm in London in the past few years. So thanks very much and look forward to seeing you then. Bye-bye.